Welcome to Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, January 10th. I'm Anastasia Glova. Today's guest is Cato's H.L. Mencken fellow, P.J. O'Rourke. P.J. is the author of 10 books, including Parliament of Whores and Give War a Chance, both of which were number one New York Times bestsellers. Yesterday, P.J. gave a book forum at the Cato Institute on his most recent work, On the Wealth of Nations, which is an impressive and, I would add, successful attempt to cull the essential concepts from Adam Smith's massive Wealth of Nations into a brisk, enjoyable, and informative 217 pages. P.J., why is your book necessary? Uh, My book is necessary because nobody is going to read The Wealth of Nations. I mean, there are two or three people here at Cato that have read it, but that's it. It's 900 pages long. And a lot of it is out of date. A lot of it has to do with econometrics that are very old-fashioned. A lot of it could be quickly represented with graphs, but Adam Smith didn't have graphs. And yeah, it runs on. So, so it, what's really needed is a wise condensation of it. Failing that, we're going to get my commentary. Did you find such a tome a little bit unapproachable and intimidating at first? No, it was just a lot of work. Actually, Adam Smith has very nice prose style. Once you get with the rhythm of 18th century English, it really is not difficult reading at all. There just is a lot of it. And, of course, there is context. I mean, it took me a year, or more than a year, to do the reading for this book. But a lot of that reading was background reading to understand what was going on at the time. Uh, I was not as familiar as I should have been with the French physiocrats, with David Hume, with a variety of other subjects. How does Wealth of Nations retain its relevance when most of the examples that Adam Smith used to demonstrate his concepts are outmoded and by a large irrelevant today? Well, the simplest answer to that would be on the issue of free trade. Adam Smith had that absolutely nailed. I mean, long before our present panic about trade with China or 20 years ago, our panic about the trade with Japan, whatever the panic will be in the future. The same panic pertained in 18th century Britain about the balance of trade and current accounts deficit. And Adam Smith just demolishes these things. He said that, of course, we're spending money overseas, but it's not like we're not getting anything for that money. And you say, well, money has got a sort of worth that perishable goods don't have. And he said, well, pots and pans have a worth that perishable goods don't have. So why don't we try and accumulate more pots and pans in Great Britain and thereby exacerbate our domestic felicity. Which teaching of Adam Smith's would you say is least appreciated today? The same teaching of Adam Smith's uh, of all good economists, which is that wealth is not zero sum. If there is one key lesson to be learned about economics, it is that wealth is not zero sum, that there's not a fixed amount of good things in this world, and that if I eat too many pizza slices, you have to eat the Domino's box. How well do you think we have learned those lessons then? Very poorly indeed to judge by our behavior. I mean, we've just elected a pack of Democrats to Congress, not that the pack of outgoing Republicans were so swell, but one of the things that these Democrats are so excited about is to restrict trade. They think that they're going to make America more prosperous by restricting trade. Prosperity is based on three things, pursuit of self-interest, division of labor, and freedom of trade. The Democrats might as well come in on a program saying that you can't do anything that's good for you or that you, you can't specialize, that you must know how to do everything. It would be equally absurd. You mention in the book that in order to fully understand Wealth of Nations, it is necessary to also peruse his earlier theory of moral sentiments. Why is that? Well, Adam Smith was not primarily an economist. He couldn't have been. The field hadn't been invented. He was a moral philosopher. 
And his plan was to write three massive works, The Theory of Moral Sentiments, uh, the first book that he wrote, The Wealth of Nations, and a book about politics, or, or what he called jurisprudence. And the idea was that the, the theory of moral sentiments would address how we achieve moral understanding, how we make moral decisions, how we improve our own morality. And the, the second book would be how we improve our material condition. And the third book would be how to improve our political condition. He didn't get to the third book. In fact, I think he may have even been too discouraged to try the third book in a way because as a moral philosopher, he must have eventually come to the conclusion that politics is no place for morality and not much of a place for philosophy either. People regard the work of Adam Smith as being mostly about the material world. Well, that's only half of his work. And he makes a lot of arguments in The Wealth of Nations that sound rather cold and calculated. For instance, his argument against slavery in The Wealth of Nations is that slavery is inefficient, that slaves are actually very expensive, that slavery is not a good way to accomplish things. And you think, well, doubtless that's all right, but gosh, what a kind of cold argument. Well, he'd already made his impassioned moral argument against slavery in The Theory of Moral Sentiments. And it's in the theory of moral sentiments we see Adam Smith laying out his ideas about what is valuable, what actually constitutes self-interest. And he leaves these things unsaid in The Wealth of Nations because he assumes you've read the first book, and you haven't, and neither had I. In fact, I had never even heard of the first book until I started to work on The Wealth of Nations. How do you think the invisible hand concept became so famous, given that Smith only mentions it in passing once or twice? actually mentions it three times. There's a, a kind of offhand reference to Invisible Hand of Jove in one of his, in an essay about astronomy, of all things, that he wrote when he was in his 20s. I don't know uh, why people grabbed on. I guess it was just kind of a cool image. When Adam Smith used the metaphor of invisible hand, what he really meant, what he was really talking about was unintended consequences. There are all sorts of things that we do that have unintended consequences, some positive and some negative. Specifically, when he used the invisible hand in the theory of moral sentiments, he was talking about how the rich people, when they develop and generate wealth, even though they're bad people and they would love to use all this wealth, the sad fact is that they cannot wear more than a certain number of clothes. Their, their stomachs are no larger than our stomachs. They'd like to eat all the food that they grow, but they simply are physically incapable of doing it. And so therefore, the wealth that rich people generate benefits other people, even though the rich people don't want it to. That's what he's talking about with the invisible hand. How that exactly got, what the historiography, if you will, of the invisible hand, why it got picked up as an idea about how capitalism just naturally makes everything better for everybody, I don't know. When Adam Smith meant that, he said it. He had specific ideas about a system of society and government where people would be allowed to keep the fruits, of, they would be secure in keeping the fruits of their endeavor, and that we should work to build a system of law and a, a system of contract that would give people security. And, and so he, he didn't need to use the invisible hand, and indeed he didn't. How did he go about upending the theories of the physiocrats and especially the mercantilists, given the popularity of their ideas at the time? Well, he really didn't spend that much time. Uh, he spent a lot of time refuting the, the mercantilists. Uh, he didn't spend too much time refuting the physiocrats, and I think the reason was that their ideas were so absurd on the face of it. They basically felt that all wealth came from agriculture and only from agriculture. And it was such a ridiculous argument that he didn't even, I mean, he does refute it, but he doesn't spend a lot of time doing it because it doesn't need a lot of time for refutation. 
Instead, actually, he was very complimentary about the physiocrats because, uh, among the other things the physiocrats believed, I mean, they believed some silly things, but they also believed in not interfering with people's economic endeavor. And Smith so approved of the fact that they approved of free trade and that they approved of a free market system that he gave them kind of a buy on their sillier ideas. How did your politics evolve? You started out, as I understand it, at a left-wing rag, and now you're the Mencken Fellow at the Cato Institute. Well, I actually started out as a normal Republican. I came from a a normal Republican family, but it was the 60s. I I was carried away by the winds of the times, and I I thought I was a leftist just because all the other kids were thinking that they were leftists, and and, and the cute girls seemed to go for leftists or whatever, you know. And as I got into my late 20s and early 30s and I started to see the reality of the world, I think the thing that really changed my mind, and it wasn't something that happened instantly, it was the thing that gradually changed my mind, was the realization that left-wing philosophy required a tremendous amount of interference in individual life, and that interference couldn't possibly be effective without tremendous amount of coercion, and that there were examples extant in the world of where that coercion went. I mean, big, horrible, nasty examples like the Soviet Union, like Mao's China, like, like, like Vietnam, like Paul Potts, Cambodia, and, and like North Korea. And uh, it had to be pretty dense not to see in what direction that amount of coercion led. As a prolific writer, are there any other books in the works? Uh, Two things interest me at the moment. One is uh, raising children. I came to um, child raising rather late, so I'm having a lot of fun with that, and that probably will will translate into something written. Uh, Working title is The Drinking Man's Guide to Bad Parenting. Uh, and, uh, and the other thing is democracy. I, I'm fascinated by democracy. I, besides being involved with Cato, I'm, I'm on the board of trustees for Freedom House. And uh, here we are promoting democracy and freedom around the world. And yet I've realized over the past few years that we don't always know what, what we mean when we start talking about democracy. And we don't even always know what we mean when we talk about freedom. If you enjoyed this program, consider subscribing to Cato Audio, a dynamic 60-minute monthly recording that brings you inside the Cato Institute for highlights from exceptional, one-of-a-kind lectures and events on key issues of the day presented by nationally known scholars, authors, and political leaders. Cato Audio is available on our website as well as on iTunes and audible.com.